you have to celebrate Christmas. It's not just enough to believe that this child born of a virgin was the logos from before the ages, right? We can say we believe that all we want to, but if we don't act on that information in some way, and the way that you act on this information, Taylor refer, talks about liturgy and like, let's say he talks about the feast, the act of celebration as being like a song, right? So the song has a, a melody, like a, think of like a little melody, has sequential moments, you know, all these different notes and everything. But, but really the beginning to the end of that song all happen in the same moment because it's a unit. So if you don't sing the song, then you're not actually, you have no way of participating in it in that moment. And if you don't celebrate Christmas, then the moment, this holy moment, right? This moment when heaven and earth, everything comes together into this point, right? That moment just passes you by and pretty soon you stop believing at all. This is Jonathan Peugeot. Welcome to the Symbolic World. So hello, everyone. I am back here with Richard Rowland for another episode of Universal History. As all of you know, Richard and I uh, wrapped up a major course on Beowulf where Richard took us to, through very convincingly why Beowulf is a Christian poem. And uh, if you watch it, you'll see at the end, I myself have a like a mouth agape, like he just, at the end, you there's no doubt. It just like all comes together. It's very beautiful. So uh, so you can still check that out, by the way, if you're interested, the, uh, the course is gonna stay on for sale on the website, so you can check that out. But today we are going to talk about Christmas, about the kind of how Christmas came together as a feast in the church, why it's so important, you know, why we celebrate Christmas the way we do today. And so uh, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a great episode. Thanks for coming on, Richard. Glad to be here. Um, this is uh, one of my personal like hobby horses uh, is is defending Christmas. I'm a I'm a I'm a staunch uh, veteran of the Christmas Wars. Um, for a little context about this, uh, maybe some people remember. If you were if you are like a fundamentalist Protestant, especially living in the South, like the Southern U.S., um, I, I, I like how Americans, we say the South as this is the only South. But I guess I guess people do that everywhere. But anyway, um, but if you're living in the Southern U.S., you, you might have been familiar, like you might have grown up in like the worship wars. wars. Yeah. Uh, so the worship wars was like the big kind of like maybe you had this other places, too. I just didn't grow up there. Where, you know, it was like, do we do like a praise band or a piano and hymns or like a piano and organ or, you know, there's kind of a debate about this kind of stuff. Like my family was in the trenches of all that stuff when I was a mm. kid. But then uh, as I grew up and eventually, um, you know, was on pastoral staff for several years, uh, one day, uh, one day somebody came to me very upset and said, well, somebody's put up a Christmas tree in the, like the foyer of the church. And I was like, well, it's um, it's December, so we we do that every year, and uh, it kind of I was very, I was uh, totally uh, flabbergasted, you could say, like yeah. like very caught off guard. Mm. Uh, why would this be a problem? And uh, but that kind of that kind of uh, initiated a, a multi year, I don't want to say struggle, but but uh, a period that I I sometimes kind of refer to. My wife and I refer to as the Christmas Wars. Which had to do with which had to do with uh, some people 
um, not all just at that church, but just like in our lives, et cetera, uh, really, really going hard, trying to get people to stop celebrating Christmas. And it's the usual sort of stuff. It's a, it's a pagan holiday. It's a, it's too Catholic, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so that is one of the things that caused me to like really dig my heels in mm. and start studying. Um, actually, uh, that was right before I started working on uh, what eventually became a master's in essentially medieval literature. Yeah, right? but it caused yeah. me to yeah, like that was one of the things that got me to start like really dig my heels in and be like, all right, well, if this is really a Roman Catholic thing, then gosh darn it, I'm gonna understand why. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, as as opposed to just say, oh well, that's Catholic, so toss that so yeah it's it's a weird it's a weird thing like studying and sort of fighting for the celebration of christmas is actually probably why i'm orthodox interesting in, in a weird way yeah. um that's like a, a part of my story that i don't think i've i've ever shared before publicly but but you know that's one of the things that got me to uh you know really think about what it means to have tradition and what it means to celebrate and there's a part of there was a part of my conversion experience that was certainly intellectual Mm. Right. But the much more important part was as we were converting as a family, especially for my wife, was the uh, was the embodied part of it. Mm. And for us, actually, really deciding we need to take not just Christmas, but like Advent seriously and and do these certain things. And then later on Lent and Easter, like deciding that we needed to 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 find some way to make these times kind of special as a family and start participating in this in a more embodied way mm. was a really important turning point for our family. It's interesting. So, I just want to say something yeah. about what you said. It's interesting because the this holiday war that we see, it's it's a strange place where secular atheist types and fundamentalists hold hands in their yeah. arguments. And to be fair, not all fundamentalists, um, because the again the family that I grew up in is super big. Yeah, but like some fundamentalists, yeah. like really a very, yeah. very particular strain of of fundamentalists. Like yeah. I know a lot of people that were in that camp. Like anti anti Christmas camp when I was younger, they ended up moving towards Jewish holidays ultimately. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the things we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, and actually, for people who want to go back uh, to last year's video, last year we did a, a video. It was a sequel to the Groundhog Day video, uh, where we looked at the the four winter feasts of the the four great winter feasts of the church and kind of talked about how those are fulfillments of of Hanukkah or the festival of the rededication of the temple and the rededication of the Temple of the Cosmos. I'm not going to repeat myself on a lot yeah. of that stuff today because people, go watch we, it. We t- people can go back and watch that. But So all this to say, uh, this is this is like a, a it's a very, you know, pa- a passionate subject for me. So I'm excited to to talk about it today. So then we're going to do this in two parts. I want to talk about a little bit about how we got to have the kind of Christmas celebration that we have today, which is which is understanding that everybody, you know, different families do things a little bit differently. Broadly speaking, there are certain things which, if you live in North America and you celebrate Christmas, there are certain things that you're you're doing, mm. that you're you're doing, and you're doing them every year. And even if you're not doing them, you know some of them specifically, they're all around you. They're in all of the Christmas movies. They're in all of the like the the you know you can't get away from it. The grocery store, the uh, the 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 home improvement store, the the mall, like all these things, right? You can't, there's certain things you can't get away from. So I want to kind of talk about how we got to that Christmas. Yeah. And, uh, and then also look at some of the historical attempts to abolish Christmas and, uh, and what, and then basically the second half of the video was talking about why that hasn't worked. Why is stick is Christmas so sticky yeah. that we can't seem to help ourselves mm. when it comes to celebrating it. So <clears throat> that's where we're going to go. All right.
So I want to begin with uh, just talking about the essence of the feast. Um, this is, you know, in some respects, the most obvious part. And yet it's so it's it's weird because it's so obvious, like we constantly feel like every year, I mean, you know, six of my neighbors right now have a have a put, you know, keep Christ in Christmas kind of a, a thing out in their yard with a nativity scene and stuff. And it's great. I love it. Um, um, you know, I, I really love just all the statues of Jesus and Mary everywhere this time of year. You know, it, uh, it's great. And um, um, now I really am serious about that. We'll, we'll, we'll come to that in a, a yeah. little bit. Um, but I think it is actually kind of this beautiful return to tradition that you see happening, you know, even in, you know, the deep South. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's an yeah. unconscious return to tradition, yeah. you know, in very unsuspecting yeah. places. And that has to do with that stickiness that we're going to talk yeah, about. Right. But, but I just want to start with like the fundamental essence of the feast, which I think will help us understand why it is as sticky as it is. Mm. Um, and that is, it's the, it's the ultimate expression of the pattern of the high becoming low. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I know this is a pattern you talk about a lot. People who are, we we're talking about this the other day, right? People who are like on this channel a lot or in the various discussions around this part of the internet think about this pattern a lot, but this is the ultimate expression of this pattern. Right. And it, it, what it does is it manifests this pattern, you could say like more, um, evocatively than almost anything else except for the crucifixion. Yeah. Right. Right. And so, um, I just want to read something real quick. This is from, you know, uh, uh, this is from our, our festal, uh, hymns for the feast in the Orthodox church, but the, this actually comes from. Uh, this is just a setting into verse of a mostly already metrical homily or oration that, that was given by St. Gregory, the theologian, um, on the on the occasion of Theophany slash Nativity, which, as I'm going to explain in a moment, used to be uh, celebrated on the same day. Yeah. So this it says, Christ is born, glorify him. Christ comes from heaven, go to meet him. Christ is on earth, be exalted. Sing to the Lord all the earth and praise him in gladness, O people, for he has been glorified to the Son, begotten of the Father before all ages, an incarnate of the Virgin without seed in these latter days. To Christ our God, let us cry out, you have raised up our horn, holy are you, O Lord. Stem and flower of the root of Jesse, you have blossomed from the Virgin, O Christ. From the mountain overshadowed by the forest, that's a, it's an image from the Song of Habakkuk, uh, which the church traditionally ascribes to the Virgin Mary. From the mountain overshadowed by the forest you have come, made flesh from her who knew no man. O God, not formed from matter, glory to your power, O Lord. I behold a strange, most glorious mystery. Heaven, the cave, the cherubic throne, the virgin, the manger, a place where Christ lay, the uncontainable God whom we magnify in song. So this is like the the really the 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 key kind of the center of our celebration and it comes from a much longer oration that saint gregory gave on this feast mm -hmm. and he talks about a lot of things that are I, I really encourage people to go and read this you can find it in his festival orations um uh the excerpt i was just reading there comes from a book called the 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 winter pasca which is just a really great kind of uh, of a reader written by father thomas hopko back in the day on the various feasts of the of the winter season um and in each each chapter is like maybe two or three pages and there's 40 of them so um yeah, it's a it's just a really lovely little reader. But when he talks about a lot of things, he talks about actually how should we celebrate the feast? Don't celebrate it like the pagans, that is, with 
drunkenness. We're going to talk about drunkenness specifically today because it comes up a lot as it happens in uh, talking about historical celebrations of Christmas, but not to celebrate it as pagans, but instead to celebrate it soberly as Christians, uh, by which, of course, St. Gregory means go to church, feed the poor, mm-hmm. right? And and then, you know, yeah, enjoy yourself as well, but don't, uh, you know, don't engage in the kind of revelry that the pagans engage in. Um, um, and there's a lot of beautiful themes in this homily, right? The high becoming the lowest thing. I mean, there's nothing weaker or less uh less powerful than a jewish baby in the you know in the roman empire right Mm -hmm. you know this you don't get any weaker any poorer any less significant than that right Mm -hmm. um uh the on the one of the other major images that we find in the ancient hymns both in the east and in the west is the um the uncontainable the idea of something that can't be contained being contained right Mm -hmm. in the virgin in the manger and so on and then of course you know, for us as Christians, the the deep significance, which you'll find many of the church fathers talking about, of Christ being laid in a food trough. Yeah. Right. As as you know, like this is, I mean, it's very, very sort of evident Eucharistic imagery, right? Foreshadowing, foreshadowing that. So, um, and then of course, images yeah. like the really images of the ten, of the ten, of the of the uh, Ark of the Covenant there, and that mm-hmm. that text you wrote, like between the cherubim and everything, like yes understanding that there there's a relationship between the glory of god descending uh in the temple and christ being born out of the virgin right pretty yeah yeah this is really important i mean this is the the i mean i like the most common orthodox hymn about the theotokos is like the more honorable than the cherubim right well to that to understand why that's not just a nice thing that we say because we like mary right you really have to look at hymns like this hymn of the feast right where we're saying, right, the virgin becomes the cherubic throne, mm-hmm. right? So like the, the the cherubim, they carry the throne. Well, she, but she's the throne, mm. right? And that's why she's more honorable than than them, right? Because she's the throne now. And and she becomes the throne in like the most like earthy, literal way possible yeah. because she's, the baby is sitting at her lap, right? This is one of the earliest uh, uh, images that we have of the virgin from the catacombs in Rome yeah. is this, is the adoration of the Magi, right? Um, and, uh, which is the, which was originally, by the way, was originally the focus of the Christmas celebration in the West. Um, we'll talk about, we'll talk about how, how Christmas gets, um, kind of split out from Theophany and Epiphany in just a second. And then of course, one of the other major themes, and again, I just suggest people go back and watch that video we did last year. One of the major themes here is the idea of the restoration of the temple of the cosmos, mm-hmm. right? And it's it's sort of linked, it's ties to the Old Testament feast of the restoration or the festival of lights, what nowadays is called Hanukkah. So um, so that being said, let me talk about the ancient Christian and, and medieval celebrations of the feast. So originally Christmas and Theophany or Christmas and Epiphany, Epiphany in the West, Theophany in the East, they have different emphases, but they're the same feast. And I'm just gonna probably call it Theophany yeah. the rest of our conversation, but I'm really including both. I mean. The, the the differentiation of emphasis is very ancient. Um, as you know, so Theophany focuses mainly on the baptism of Christ. Epiphany focuses mainly on the adoration of the Magi. Yeah, um, but there was also like uh, I think that the idea of the early feast was something like the feast of of the revelation of light. That's right. That's right. I mean, that's the earliest. That's the earliest thing. Like it's the feast of light, right? The festival of light. And uh, of course, when Saint Gregory is is is, de- is delivering that festival oration, that's the occasion on which he's doing it. 
Yeah. Which um, is why, like, there's all while those images come together, right? The moment when Christ is first recognized in the world. So yeah. the Magi, the 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 baptism, but then also like the wedding of Cana, for example, would be mentioned in those mm -hmm. early feasts. And yeah. so like all these moments before Christ reveals himself fully, like the right. glimmer of light appearing in in uh, in the incarnation. Really like everything culminating up to the baptism. Right. right. That that whole kind of episode, which is where two of the gospels start, right? Two of the gospels just begin at the baptism. Mm. Um, which is which is an important detail. Um so so yeah, so uh originally this is all kind of one feast. And actually in Armenian Christianity is still celebrated this way, mm -hmm. right? All, all on one single feast. What happens beginning in the mid-fourth century is that uh the, the the celebration of Christmas gets to sort of split out from Nate from Epiphany Theophany into two feasts, uh, which are 12 days apart. And the reason for this is basically Arianism. Mm -hmm. So Arianism is the uh, it's the sort of, you know, the arch heresy as far as Christians are concerned, right? It's this teaching that the son was a creature, that he was not eternally begotten. Um, it's that's not necessarily the teaching that uh, Jesus wasn't God or Jesus wasn't divine, which is how some people will try to explain it sometimes. Because Arius actually did believe Jesus was divine. He just believed he was like a divine created thing, like a yeah. Like, like a, a lower a, god, or something. like 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 a right, a god, right, and it, and of course this creates poly, you know, polytheism and various other problems for Christian theology. Um, one of the permutations of Arianism is uh, something called Apollinarianism, which is basically this idea that, um, and there are, there are a few different versions of this, right? But it's basically the idea that Jesus is just like a normal good person, and then at some point, and most people who believe this said at the baptism. The yeah. logos comes in and fills him, right? Yeah, we and, call it adoptionism sometimes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, and a lot of these things. I mean, there was like adoptionism and then Arianism and then Apollinarianism and a lot. But I mean, a lot of these things like intersect so much. It's mm. not totally important for our purposes today to like go sit yeah. out the individual. But it, the most important to say that what was in, what became important for the Christians was to say that the incarnate logos was incarnate from the moment of conception, right. and not right. at not at some later point during the story. Right. So that's exactly how this becomes, you know, if you go back and, and look at those those hymns that I just read, right? There's this talking about how you know, the whole focus is on how Christ that is born in the manger is being adored by the Magi, right? Is already God before the ages, mm -hmm. worthy of our adoration, right? And in this context, the gifts of the Magi, which is the big focus of Epiphany in the West, becomes uh, emblematic, becomes the emblematic uh, uh, act of worship, right? This, this uh, for the total giving up of ourselves, right? Where we have nothing to give to Christ but ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll just say on this note, there's a really wonderful series of like prints. I think they were done as originally as like postcards by uh, an Art Nouveau artist named, um, I think it's Ezio uh, Anakini. And I probably got his name wrong, but uh, he was an Italian artist. And he did a series of of um, he did a series of like sort of postcard prints. We'll I'll send it to Lisa later so we can put it up on the screen. Did a series of postcard prints of of like the various titles of the Virgin, mm -hmm. but one of them for the Mater Christi, uh, the Mother of Christ. He did the uh, he does the Adoration of the Magi, and it's one of my favorite images of the Adoration of the Magi because one of the things they have them doing is taking the the incense. You know, so you got the three gifts: gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Right. Was well, so the taking the frankincense 
and burning it in a sensor before the Christ child. Mm. And I don't know why I never thought about that before I saw that image. But of course, I mean, if you believe this is this is God before the, you know, what do you do? You, what do you do when you come to God or even like an emperor for that matter, right? You burn incense, right? It's an act of worship, an act of veneration. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, uh, it's anyway, it's a really beautiful image and very evocative in that sense, right? So this is the big focus of Christmas, right? By celebrating it, we're going to talk at the end of the video today about the importance of celebrating something, why it's actually not enough to just think something correct, but you actually have to celebrate it. You have to embody it in some way, right? Which by the way, is something that, that everybody knows, yeah. right? Even, even the sort of like the, 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 the anti-culture, right? Knows this, right? And that's why you have to have Pride Month. And that's why you, you have need to have celebrations. You need not, it's right. not just remove celebrations. You have to replace right. them with something that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, what happens pretty quickly is, uh, is that uh, we start preparing for this great feast um, with a period of preparation. And so in the West, this used to begin back on November the 11th um, and in the East on November the 15th. Either way, it's sort of a 40 day fast. Um, in the West, it was called St. Martin's Lent because it originated in the Diocese of Tours in France. Mm -hmm. um, so um, if you came to the Beowulf class, you will know I made a lot of jokes at the expense of the French. But today, I have only good things to say about the French. So, so uh, um, yeah. I well, it, it is Christmas, Jonathan. It is, it is Christmas. Christmas. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to have good things to say about Martin Luther as well. So there That's you go. Good. Yeah. So, um, so if you go back and look at the sixth century councils in the West, starting in France, uh, the, the Council of Tours, and then kind of spreading around there, it establishes Advent and Christmastide as separate seasons. And it seems like this was because uh, people have started to like pre-celebrate a little too much, right? Uh, which is the thing we do in our culture now. We're like, now. well, right. Christmas is on the 25th and we got to get all of the Christmas parties, the work Christmas party and the gym Christmas party. All in before the, Christmas. Got to get all in before Christmas, right? Well, this is apparently a very old problem. And so, uh, and so what they did is they established, they established these fasts as a way of making sure we we're preparing properly. And then also uh, established Christmas time, the time from Christmas to Epiphany, with mm. as being, as being a, a time of feasting. Right. Yeah. And so this is kind of how it takes the, the general shape that it does. So for instance, the current Advent season on in the West, which doesn't start on November the 11th, starts on December the 1st, uh, or like the first Sunday around there. Uh, that that dates back to the late 6th century when uh, monks were required to fast for the first 24 days of December. And it seems like this was because they had been breaking into the Christmas ale a little bit early. That's right, yeah. yeah. They had their advent calendar now that just has chocolate in it. It's like, we eat chocolate every I day. like the ones that have just like a little thing of a different scotch whiskey in each of the doors. There you go. That's um, unfortunately, go. I can't participate in these, um, but, uh, but I, I think it's a neat idea, so... Um, but, uh, so there's a basic rule of thumb for understanding why different cultures have different Christmas traditions. And that is the colder your winter is, uh, the bigger deal Christmas is in your culture. Mm. Right. And that's, that's more or less true across the board. There's some exceptions to it. Uh, but, but put it another way, the colder your winter is, the more Christmas customs and traditions your culture will develop and yeah. like the stickier those things will be. Yeah. And, I mean, um, because it's darker too. Yeah. It, right, it, you have that sense right. of this dark moment when the into which Christ is born, and I've, I've I've heard some people say, 
something like sometimes, well, the Orthodox are really going to celebrate Pascha. They just don't all celebrate Christmas or something like this. But like, go go to Ukraine, go to Russia, go to any of those like Northern European mm-hmm. countries where it gets very cold, very dark, right? Uh, go to uh, even like Serbia and, and the Balkans. You'll find all kinds of amazing Christmas carols, Christmas traditions, stuff you've never heard of, stuff that's really similar to stuff mm-hmm. you grew up with. Um, so it really has a lot to do with the weather and particularly, like you said, the amount of darkness that you have. Um, and, uh, I'll say a little bit here about the connections between, um, and we said a lot more about this in our last video. So again, go back and watch that people and in the groundhog day video as well, but the connections between the connections between like pagan solstice celebrations. And this is the thing to say, everybody has a winter festival. Absolutely. If you have a winter, you have a winter festival. That's right. Um, and I realize I'm talking kind of mainly about the Northern hemisphere right now. Um, I don't know what to do about that, but, um, you know, we can, yeah, it's sorry, people in Australia, like, I don't, I don't know what to say, but, or in South um, Africa, South Africa, or yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, but, uh, basically like as the, as the light recedes, right. You get to the deepest, darkest part of the year and everybody has this deep, um, cultural, it's sort of deeper than cultural, actually, like this really primitive a sense that a festival is needed, that light is needed, right? Yeah, and right. Um, we have to light a bonfire. We have to light. Right. We have to light the fire. Right. Like there's, it's just inevitable to think that way. Yeah, we and have to find the light. At least we have to like get some hope for for the sun to come back. And this seems to be the main reason for people rejecting the idea that Chris that Christ might have actually been born on December the twenty fifth. Because it makes so um, much sense. Because it makes too much sense. Like that's too perfect. That goes together too well, right? Um, I would just say, like you know, uh, you know, who made the agricultural cycle? Who made the seasons? Right. right. And and uh, so so for me, it's it's just this is when life would come into the world. When else would it have happened? Right. Mm. When else would it have happened? And. Um, so a lot of uh, so all this to say, if somebody says to me, um, such and such Christmas tradition, you know, like the Christmas ham or something like this, that goes back to this old Germanic pagan custom at Yule or something like this. Okay, all right, are you coming over for dinner or what? Like you know, let's <laughs> you know, um, yeah, that's that, and and really that should not be a problem for us if you understand the way that these things work, yeah. right? Um, and uh, uh, so a lot of the traditions that we associate with Christmas had already started developing by the late Middle Ages. Mm. Um, uh, uh, one of my favorites here is caroling, right? Uh, and, and here I have to say something which may upset some people, um, but I don't mean to, all right? And that is that a carol is not the same thing as a hymn. Nowadays, in like modern English parlance, when somebody says a Christmas carol, they just mean a a religious song that you sing at Christmas time, right? Or as a semi-religious song that you sing at Christmas time. It's just like a Christmas song. That's what we mean by Christmas carol. But carols are not the same things as uh, as hymns. Uh, and in fact, carols were not sung in church until about the later half of the nineteenth century. Oh, really? Yeah, not sung in, and, and carols are not to be sung in church. Yeah, yeah, um, they're, and, not, uh, they're not liturgical at all. They're not liturgical, and uh, uh, you've got to sort of think about. So, actually, sometimes you'll find medieval bishops writing against the practice of caroling. This is a little funny to think about 
Because I know that, you know, some traditions really love their like lessons and carols service on Christmas Eve, mm. which I think is awesome, quite frankly. And I'm not going to stop, you know, I'm not telling anybody to stop doing that. But it's quite funny to realize that there are lots of medieval bishops, you know, in France and England and other places writing against the practice of caroling. Well, why are they writing against the practice of caroling? Because caroling is, um, uh, it's a, it's a sort of a, it's a carnival practice, right? You're going around from house to house and you're usually going with a keg or like a large bowl of very alcoholic punch. And you come up to the door of the place and you sing, and then you offer the people at the house, you offer them a drink in exchange for like a gift of some kind. Right. And oh, this, yeah. is, this is caroling. And um, which by the way, sounds like a great time. Uh, we, we try to do caroling uh, every year just around our neighborhood. Wow. And, um, and uh, but I've never like been like, have a sip from the flask as well, neighbor, like, Maybe I need to bring that in, but um, that would yeah. definitely make you more popular if you. Yeah, didn't. yeah, yeah, or less popular depending or on which neighbor. Depending involved. on which. Yeah, neighbor. yeah, but but anyway, my point is that 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 all of that sounds awesome, okay? Mm -hmm. But this actually helps explain the kind of the character of Christmas carols. Like if you go back and look at some really old medieval Christmas carols, especially like medieval English carols, which mm -hmm. is what most of us know. Um, sometimes they're uh they're, they're let's, let's put it this way they're not usually theologically explicit yeah um they're, they're a lot of times they'll have be, be something like i saw three ships on christmas day or something like this and there's a lot of metaphor and it's the way to think of it is a sort of a a lyrical veil over the mystery yeah and why is the mystery veiled in this way well it's because it's because we're not in church right and we're going around town and we're slightly drunk at this point and also some of the things that they sang along with Christmas carols in the same setting were drinking songs. Yeah. Um, no, I'm I, I didn't how, know how much trouble, that. how much trouble am I allowed to get into? Yeah, get, as much trouble as you can. Okay. So I'll just say that there is a, um, uh, there's a collection, like a 15th century manuscript that collects a bunch of Christmas carols, including one of my favorite uh, medieval carols, which is called, Adam lay ebounded. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, but it also has like songs about somebody's male member. Um, um, the lyrics of which are are quite hilarious, actually. And and the thing you have to understand is they're going from house to house and you're getting songs about like the fall and original sin and baby Jesus is a manger. And then also here's a here's a funny, you know, body funny humor. Dirty, like a yeah, like a body a, song. Yeah, here's a dirty song, right? That that's that's how carols were used. That's what caroling is. Um, this is this is the uh, those are the only two registers anybody has in the Middle Ages. You're either like contemplating the mystery or it's body yeah. humor, and those are the two. Like, there's nothing yeah. in between. When but, would they carol? Like, when what date? What days? Do you know? Well, so the 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 thing that the church really tried to enforce is caroling doesn't start till Christmas night. After okay. Mass. Yeah, uh, Christmas night. And then, um, and then you you go you go around caroling after that. And of course, eventually, uh, what happens is that um, the distinction between Advent and Christmas tide gets kind of lost, and that's how we get the situation that we have today. But that doesn't really happen until the 19th century. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, this culminates. Eventually, carols become a nostalgia thing, uh, at least the ones that aren't about, you know, oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Forget uh, about them. Don't know them. Now they become yeah. those become the ones you hear at the yeah. mall. And by the way, there were carols. I'll just say there were carols for other holidays too. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, some very famous, uh, very famous, like uh, Ash Wednesday carols. Okay. Um, uh, 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 Good Friday carols. 
uh, even one uh, 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 carol for the circumcision of the Lord that I that I managed to find. So there there were like historically there were other carols as well, but Christmas was like the main time you went caroling, and it has to do with this. It has to do with this you know, the the winter of it all, basically. Right, you need a drink. Yeah. It's like yeah, you need a drink. Cold and it's dark. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so um, you, we also get things like the Christmas boar. Um, uh, there's a, there's actually a famous carol about this, the boar's head at Christmas, which is mm-hmm. which I really love. Um, the use of, uh, especially in Western Europe, the use of evergreenery, you know, uh, like okay. garland, holly, um, um, evergreens, you know, fir trees, things like this. The use of this to sort of like uh, sparse up the inside of the house, right, with like lice and evergreen, which is, if there's any aesthetic, which which is like identifiably Christmas, it would be yeah. lots of lights and just evergreen things everywhere, right? Um, and again, when most of the world is dead, except for these particular plants, yeah. Right. That it's very easy to see why why that would be done. And and also uh, winter berries, like the idea of a yeah. winter berry is really yeah. important with Christmas because it has oh, yeah. that light or that seed that's being preserved and you can still identify it even though everything else is dead. Yeah. No, that's uh that's a beautiful way to say that. And uh, even things like mistletoe, which we, we know like as modern people, we know it to be a parasitic fungi, right? Uh but fungus. But but for medieval people, the mistletoe had all of these other connotations, right? You know, the, the, um, but also like it's a little poisonous. So it's, yeah. But, uh, it's, it's just one of those interesting things. Go look at the way that mistletoe is used in medieval symbolism. That's a, that's a little video, I think. But, oh, really? um, uh, so you have, uh, you have all this stuff that comes in. Uh, another very important element that should not be overlooked is the feasting of the poor. So this is a really important part of actually any Christian celebration. Um, if you if you want to be trad and you want to go celebrate holidays in traditional ways, if you're not buying a meal for somebody else, right, yeah. or or you know get a case of beer for the guy in the corner or something, you know, like if you're not if you are not actually feasting the poor in some way, then you are actually tradition celebrating traditionally. Mm. And so the way that it worked in, for instance, in medieval England is that there were certain days of the year. Uh, Easter, St. John's Night, which is the summer solstice, and then and Christmas uh, specifically, other days as well, but those three days specifically, when it was expected that the well-to-do members of the village or of the town would put out a feast for all of the poor people, mm. right? And it's sort of like, come and get as much of, as you want of all the richest foods, mm. right? And uh, this is a really important part of the celebration as well. Um, and a lot of times when we talk, we think about like the social inversion aspect of some of these holidays, like like the boy bishop feast or the the feast of the ass on January the fourteenth, right? Obviously, the there's there they have a connotation of like misrule and things like this, and those aspects were always always concerned for for religious leaders, especially those of the more sort of uptight variety. Um, but also an, a part of the the whole idea of inversion is that poor people get to eat what the rich people have. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a really important dynamic within yeah. Christianity and a really important dynamic within the traditional observance of these feasts. Yeah. And that's still like today we still have, you know, the kind of Christmas, uh, I don't know how you say it in English, but, you know, like the, to gather around food for Christmas, like you go to you eat for, yeah. for poor people and make yeah. boxes for families that struggle and stuff like that's definitely still even in a secular world, it's still yeah. a there. I, feel, I think every church that I've ever gone to as a member, uh, both as a, a Protestant and now as an Orthodox Christian, has done that for Christmas. And um, even the grocery stores get in on it. You know, it was like, here's a bunch of conveniently packed bags of food. You can just buy one 
and then we'll donate it to the shelter and, yeah. and things like that. So, um, you know, uh, the rule about charity, there are two rules about charity. Uh, no, since nobody asked, there are two rules about charity. One is that the, the, the less, uh, the closer the proximity, the better, right? Um, the more times my money changes hands, I'm not even talking about like, where is that money actually going? Because this doesn't actually seem to be a question that we're supposed to ask. As Christians, I mean, be a little discerning about the charities you donate to, mm. but Christ, you know, Christ says to give to every man that asks of you, right? So not, but what is he going to do with it later? Um, but, but anyway, um, but the, the more, the more times that, that gift changes hands, right? Basically the farther away I have to be from my neighbor to give to him, right? Though, let's say like the less salvific it is, right? It has a different effect on your soul. If you are personally you know, giving something to somebody, you're looking somebody in the eye, you're seeing them as a human being, right? It's, that's a very different thing than I just, I just gave some money to a, to a charity online and now I'm covered. And I'm not saying don't give money to charities online, like do what you can't do, what, do what you can do, but, but, but maybe don't, um, don't underestimate the importance of, um, and this is just the real difference you could say like between religious charity and, uh, something like government welfare, right? Yeah. Um, is that there is a sort of a, a depersonalization that goes on, right? That makes it, um, you know, never mind what the effect might be on the person who's on the receiving end, right? But for the person, um, you know, um, Saint John Chrysostom, lots of lots of famous homilies against, you know, wealth. Uh, there there are no warnings to the poor in the Bible, mm. you know. And um, but one of the things that he he you know, to paraphrase, you know, said, you know, what are you saving up for? Hell, you know, <laughs> kind of. You know that kind of an idea, but um, yeah, but he talks a lot about this and, and says, you know, the poor man is there for your salvation, right. you know, so you can't neglect him, right? So this is the really important part of of the celebration of this kind of feast, and uh, it's also a very important part of understanding the symbolism of Christmas, right? The highest thing becoming the lowest thing, right? Yeah. That inversion, uh, which is which is at the heart of charitable giving, works of mercy, but is also at the heart of the the parts of the feast that make certain people itchy mm -hmm. right the 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 inversion the the like the social inversions and the and the 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 revelry and things like this that all of that is actually part of that of the symbolism of the highest thing becoming low mm -hmm. so um uh and then of course you know this inversion can take darker aspects right drunkenness gambling etc yeah. um that's always been a problem people and 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 you know like uh people in charge have always tried to sort of complain about to, people getting about it christmas yeah for sure right always i uh, got to figure out how to manage it right um so uh and i just want to reiterate a lot of the things that we're talking about here you know you could go back and look at like saturnalia as this time of conversion or or something like that um a lot of things we're talking about here can just right i think should be rightly understood as integrations of pagan solstice celebrations and yeah. that should be fine, right? If we understand the way that Christianity works, the way that Christ works, the significance of his coming into the world in the deep of winter, this should not actually present us with the difficulty. Yeah, I mean, I mean, think about it. Like, it's weird because also think about in the Middle Ages, the bishop complaining that, you know, people in the town got too drunk instead of mentioning how there were massive orgies, you know, like- in, Right, yeah. Like, in, like the Saturnalia. Everything's relative. That's right, everything's relative. So you can actually see how, how Christianity transforms these types of feasts to like, yeah. to, to be able to give some room for a bit of messiness to like point it, but then point it towards 
towards a better path, you could say. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm going to talk a lot about Charles Taylor in a second, is a secular age, but he talks about these times of carnival as being like, um, the idea of like, if you have wine in a wine, like wine aging in a wine skin and you don't like unstop it every once in a while, eventually it's going to explode, right? The, right. the, the gas is just going to build up and it's going to explode. Uh, it's the same kind of a thing here. Like you do have to have a little bit like, like you shouldn't get drunk, but then also there are times when people need to get drunk, right? Those are like the two weird, uh, that's the weird dichotomy that you find even in scripture, mm -hmm. even in scripture, you find this, right? You know, that there are in Leviticus, right? You know, there's the whole like, and if you can't go to the Jerusalem for this particular feast, then take the money that you would have spent on the trip and uh, throw a big party for your friends and eat and be merry and get drunk before the Lord, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and so so it's 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 a weird it's a weird kind of a thing, and I think I think that the the balance the church has traditionally struck is that you always have uh, you always have people saying knock it off, you guys, and you always have people sort of doing it anyway. That's right. And that seems to like that seems to like hit like a good kind of flexibility. And this is really actually with this point is such a great point that you're making, and it's one that that uh, it's that people don't understand how traditional societies work because we tend to or understand authority as always as absolute authority that has absolute reach. And so when we know that like you can't cross a red light, we know that if you cross a red light, then you'll get a ticket. You know, they'll, they'll even yeah. take a picture of your license plate and then you'll get a ticket by the mail or whatever. And so, but in a, in a traditional world, like you said, it's actually a, it's actually a dance, right? Yeah. There's a dance, like you said, between different factions that create this kind of balance and move that doesn't always remain the same. It kind of moves. Sometimes it'll maybe it'll be moments where it's a bit more puritanical. Sometimes we'll be a little more permissive and then it'll kind of slide back and forth between that. But that's the dance between exactly that. The, yeah. the, the, the balance is saying, yeah, knock it off, but then doing it to some yeah. extent anyways. Yeah. The, the kind of people you always want to be careful of are the either like the Puritans or like the total hedonists, right? That's right. Either one of those extremes is a really dangerous person. It's a dangerous person to have in charge of your church. It's a dangerous person to have in your life. It's a dangerous kind of a person to be. That's right. Um, there was a, um, oh, I just had a very fun thought and then I lost it, but maybe I'll come back to me. But um, um, yeah, I think this el this element of the way that traditional societies worked is really important. And uh, this is the, uh, this is kind of like the danger of, of, uh, go oh, there's a thought. All right. So this is the danger of going and, and like just reading a whole bunch of canon law and then yeah. looking around at the people in your parish or your priest. And, and saying, nobody's like, doing what's there. What a bunch of terrible hypocrites. They're, none of them are doing what's there because that's not, it's not really how that works. Right. Yeah. And, uh, but the thing that I wanted to point out is that the, 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 when you talk about hierarchy, right, the bishops that the church has canonized that we set up as being, this is the kind of person that you should be because they're like Christ. Mm. So you should be like them. If you go and look at the lives of, of the bishops the church has canonized, one of the things that's basically universal among them is their care for the poor, mm. right? That they were out setting out a feast um, out of their personal treasury, not just for uh, the poor on certain feast days of the year, but every single day, mm. right? So they're the people who who best embody the, the highest thing, you know, in this case, the bishop, right? The highest thing becoming the lowest, mm. right? Um, and their ability to kind of do that, and um, and so it's it's this sort of it's this sort of interesting. I mean, the other big secret that that is kind of offensive to modern Christianity 
is that uh is that uh i said i said a minute ago like there are no warnings to the poor in, in the scriptures yeah and and if you look at the way that this has been that this has been uh uh kind of uh the the rigidity and the flexibility that we we're just talking about the way that's been enforced is it's the idea that the poor man is the man who needs the party and maybe he needs to get a little drunk right and then but it's actually it's you know it's the it's the well-to-do person you know feasting with all his friends he's the person who needs to be uh uh who needs to be sober and celebrate more soberly right mm. and one of the weird things that happens in um this is this is what taylor calls like multiple multiple speed christianity mm. right um and one of the weird things that happens especially with puritanism is this idea that no there's actually only one speed mm. and we have to hold the poor person to the same standard that we hold the rich man um, and that sounds really egalitarian now, but it's, um, not actually, that's not actually how traditional societies work. Yeah. So, okay. So, um, kind of, uh, one of the things that I want to point out that is maybe a little different in the medieval celebration of Christmas, uh, both in the East and the West, um, is the focus, um, uh, especially on Christmas Eve in specific, the focus on Christmas Eve, uh, uh, on the the retelling of the story of Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. So if you go to church on Christmas Eve, uh, in the Orthodox Church, uh, you'll hear the the reading of the opening narrative of Genesis, the creation of the world and the fall of man. Mm. Right. That's the best that's the that's the that's the Old Testament readings for Christmas Eve. Um if uh and this is where the sort of uh, there, there is some kind of different origins, and really, they're probably all true to a certain extent. But one of the main origins of the Christmas tree comes from the Paradise Tree, which would be set up on Christmas Eve, which is actually the day you're supposed to put up your Christmas tree, um, not the day after American Thanksgiving. Everybody, um, um, we sort of compromise and usually do it on Saint Nicholas Day, okay? But, um, and, and in my family, but uh, which is in a couple of days uh, from when we're recording this. But, but anyway, but but Christmas Eve, traditional day when the tree goes up, and uh and and because the idea is it's the tree of paradise yeah it's the tree of life the okay. tree of paradise and it was there's, part a, of, there's a paradise tree tradition both in east and west you said on the well second? the paradise tree not so much but I, I what i'm saying is the focus uh, that that's really a western european okay, thing yeah. but the I'm, I'm just saying the focus on um the focus on adam and eve on christmas okay. eve is a, is the thing of both the east and the west and it's something that it's weird we kept the paradise tree Right, uh, and actually became totally ubiquitous in the Western celebration of Christmas, and in the East too. Everyone does Christmas trees now. This yeah. is great. I'm super pro Christmas trees. So, like, go cut down a fir tree, put it in your living room. Um, God will be pleased. Like, do it. Uh, but, but, um, but, uh, but it's it's interesting because the the liturgical focus, as far as I know, and I could be wrong about this, uh, but the liturgical focus in the West on on Genesis. Um, on Christmas Eve has kind of been lost, but it was really cool. In the Middle Ages, they would have um, uh, passion plays about Adam and Eve, and this is the main. This is the main. Let me put it this way: this is the main time of year when somebody in like medieval England would have interacted with a Genesis story, not mm-hmm. just like not just like seen a picture of it or like heard it read or something like that. But the main time of year that they would have actually interacted with it in an embodied way would have been on Christmas Eve. So they would um, they would have like play. Yeah, a pa- and a passion play for people who don't know is like a paraliturgical thing. It's not something that happens in the church, but it's 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 the origin, by the way, of like the like the Easter pageant or the Christmas pageant that maybe you did. I did lots of these growing up as uh, you know as an evangelical. Yeah, and they're really cool memories. Um, um, 
but but that has its basis in the passion play. But the passion play was something that it's not something that they did in the church. It's something that they did in like the village square. Yeah. Um, and they had they had them for obviously the name passion play. Uh, 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 you know, implies passion tide. But they had them for but they had them for all the various feast days of the year. In fact, uh, the passion plays for the for Candlemas Groundhog Day. We talked about that last year. Um, were really really cool. Um, they had you know like a woman from the village that they are uh, selected to play the Virgin Mary, and she would be carrying a baby, and the whole city would village would process with her up to the door of the church, and she'd present the baby to the priest, and all this stuff. Like it was you know, and so again, these are sort of like paraliturgical ways to uh, participate in the feast. Mm. Um, okay, so um, and then also just one thing to mention is that because Christmas is a day to go to church first and foremost. Is all these other things, but the thing that makes it a holy day is the fact that you're having the mass. That's the mass in increased mass, right? Um, uh, so it was considered to be a very important day. So there are a lot of famous kings uh, and emperors, including Charlemagne, who were ordained on Christmas Day. Yeah, right. It was just considered to be like the most appropriate day for this this kind of an action. Uh, I said ordained. Uh, 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 coronation, ordination, yeah, cor right? But but, but cor coronation is uh, that is a, a holy order. That's a sacrament of, of the church. So, um, all right. So let me talk a little bit real quick about Christmas in the early modern period. So what's really interesting is that the Reformation period gives birth to both Christmas as we basically as we celebrate it now in the Western Hemisphere, but also to the general anti-Christmas movement. Right. So like both of those things come out of the Reformation. So on the one hand, you have, for instance, Lutheranism. Martin Luther, big fan of Christmas, um, and uh, which I take as a redeeming quality. Um, and he he sort of engineered the massive production of Christmas hymns and carols. And you can always tell a Lutheran carol from a medieval Christian, a medieval English carol, because the medie medieval English carols are like really weird and have like a lot of, of uh, symbolism and things like this. And the Lutheran carols, because they're written as theologically explicit songs are, are like very, like obviously theologically explicit. And mm. so it's, um, whereas, whereas like the, the older medieval carols are kind of more riddling in nature. Um, but this is when Christmas trees really become a big thing, um, probably related to that paradise tree. Like we talked about, um, and, and also just the general, very ancient practice in that part of the world, bringing greenery into the house as part of the winter. So are there, are there any of the medieval hymns that are still active now? Yes. Um, there are, I, I've actually kind of put together a playlist of some of them. Um, of course, all the ones that we, uh, so are you asking about hymns or carols? Cause again, that's a, I would say carols. Like yeah. Carols. Yeah. Um, yes, there are a few, um, probably the oldest one that people know well is good King Wenceslas. Right, uh, which is about the uh, which is about the practice, by the way, feeding the poor at Christmas. Right, right, um, and uh, one of my favorite songs, actually. But there's a uh, which uh, is weird because it's not like yeah, it's like it doesn't talk about Christmas, yeah. right, directly in the way right. that like Holy Night does. Let's say yes, yeah. Well, it's on the feast of Stephen, which people used to know is the second day of Christmas. But um, yeah, yeah, people used to know that uh, better. But uh, but it's a very old carol. Um, uh, I met. As, as far as other ones that are like still in popular vernacular, um, I have a bunch of ones that I like a whole lot that are not necessarily well known anymore. Um, um, but I mean, there, uh, let me think about this. Uh, right, maybe okay. I'll try to post some on the Facebook group. Um, I put together a kind of like a pre-modern Advent playlist and just try to find like all the carols and hymns that I could find that had been written before a certain date. 
Mm. And I, I've got about 30 or 40 things on that list. And so nice. maybe I'll, maybe I'll share that with, with everybody again. Okay. But, um, um, some of them are like well known. Some of them are, you know, obviously all the, all the Orthodox hymns for the feast are all, you know, written in like the eighth century. So, you know, that's all squarely pretty modern, but, um, but those aren't carols, right? Um, um, okay. So Lutheranism produces just a massive amount, number of Christmas hymns and carols, um, Christmas trees really become a big thing. Um, actually, uh, uh, Luther was big on Christmas trees, not so much on the creche, right? The nativity yeah. scene. Um, and, uh, so what's really funny is eventually this is the thing about Christmas, uh, the stickiness that we've been talking about. Um, people don't get rid of Christmas traditions. They just add new ones. Mm. And so, uh, so some people were like, no, you should do a tree, not a creche. And so everybody's like, great, we'll do both. In fact, we'll do a crash under the Christmas tree. See how, see how you like that, you know? Yeah. Um, it makes so much sense symbolically to have it. Right, right. It does. Like and, under the and hierarchy I, of heaven and, and angels of lights, you know? And then at the you, bottom, you have the crash. And you put an angel or a star at the top. Yeah, those are the angel, same thing. Which is the same thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I love, this is why I love Christmas so much. And I think it was like my, one of my primary uh, early like symbolic, um, uh, my early symbolic education really was just paying attention to Christmas uh, customs and, and yeah. things like I was talking about earlier, because everything about Christmas is so deeply symbolically intuitive. Um, it's just really beautiful. Um, so, and a lot of the trappings that we think of as kind of defining the American Christmas now were basically brought to North America by the Moravians, uh, uh, by the Pennsylvania Dutch and by these, these other groups. And so yeah. there were several continental reformed churches, such as the Dutch reformed, which did continue to celebrate Christmas. Um, uh, uh, they celebrated as one of the five evangelical feasts, um, which were Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, Ascension, and Pentecost. And I, I, I had never understood, maybe somebody out there wants to enlighten me, uh, Pastor Paul or somebody else, uh, why those are the evangelical feasts and not any of the other things in the Gospels that are also Christian feasts. Like, uh, you know, the, the name evangelical, usually when we say something is evangelical in a historical sense, we right. mean it's mentioned in the Gospels. Right, but so is Transfiguration, Annunciation, etc. So I don't know why. What are those, the five feasts? Uh, well, the five evangelical feasts, at least back then for the yeah. Dutch Reformed, uh, were, I'm not saying anything about current practice, yeah. but uh, were Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, Ascension, and Pentecost. Well, I think it's because Easter, Ascension, and Pentecost. Right, that's all kind of one cluster. There's a coherence. You know yeah. how many days. You can get it from Scripture pretty much. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that might be what it is. I think that's um, what it is. Because the other dates you, you can't get from Scripture yeah. when to, to celebrate the other ones. And, and this is basically where we get the uh, the general idea um, in American Christianity. Um, and here I'm going to speak very broadly of kind of like the the Christmas and Easter rhythm, mm. if if you know what I'm talking about. Like this idea by which you have Christmas and that's a big deal, and you have Easter, which is usually a really big deal. And then, but there's really nothing else of particular spiritual significance between the two, other than of course your your just your Sunday observance, your Lord's Day observance. Yeah. Right. That's and which is how I grew up. Right. Um, where we really get into trouble, though, Christmas wise, is when we get into the Puritans. Puritans. Right. And so here I have to say some things um, that, uh, well, they're I'm, I'm just going to read what they said. Like, it's not fun. Uh, these were not fun people. I don't know how else to say it. Um, Puritans were not fun people. Not fun people. You can quote me on that. But I think they would have said they were not fun. People. That's right. So exactly. I think it's OK. Um, so the, the, the puritanical movement by, by this, I mean, English Puritans yeah. being a sex of, of English 
Christians who thought that the Church of England and the Reformation had not gone far enough in rejecting what they called popery or papism, yeah. right? And so, so they were really trying to like purify. So you had your Puritans who were like trying to purify the Church of England and the separatists who were like, we're out of here, right? But they're really the, kind of the same movement. Yeah. Um, and then, and then of course, uh, uh, my own ancestors on one side of my family, the Scottish Calvinists, mm. um, and who also did not like Christmas. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, some of them. So, so, uh, John Knox famously said, uh, 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 supported the banning of Christmas on the grounds that it was superstitious. Um, various Puritan writers referred to Christmas as being the trappings of popery, the rags of the beast, and so on. The rags, uh, rags of the beast. Yeah. So, so this is, this is actually a really important thing to think about, I think, because sometimes when people talk about this, they'll say something like, well, the Puritans didn't ban Christmas. Actually, they did for a very short period of time from the, uh, for about 13 years, it was actually illegal to celebrate Christmas, like straight up illegal to celebrate Christmas in England. Talk about that in a second, but they'll say something like, well, they were, they were rejecting it. This is what people will say. They'll say they were rejecting it because of the over-celebration and the tendency for people to over-celebrate. So the thing that I kind of want to point out here is two things. One is, is there's always been people, you know, inveighing against don't over-celebrate but it had never been necessary to ban the holiday outright, mm -hmm. right? The other thing, though, is to point out that the act of celebration, for the Puritans, the act of celebration itself was associated with superstition and specifically Roman Catholicism, Yeah, right? And this even has weird manifestations. Um, uh, one of my areas of, of study that I did like a whole project on uh, in my graduate degree was actually... Um, the American Prohibition Movement uh, and the Temperance Movement, which I'm just really interested in for a lot of reasons. But one of the interesting things that you'll find if you go back and you read a lot of the early temperance literature, and I have, I've actually gone to the, the country's largest temperance archives um, to like read through a bunch of the early literature. Um, <laughs> what, you'll, what you'll find is that is that there is a lot of, uh, frankly, anti-Catholic sentiment as a part of the literature of the early temperance movement. Yeah. Because it's the it's the German, Italian, Irish immigrants coming over here. They drink. Who drink. And that's causing the problem. Actually, it was actually probably the saloons that were causing the problem, not the beer gardens. But that's a different conversation. We could talk sometime about the symbolism of going from we all get together as a family to have some beer and we're sitting at a table looking at each other to I'm sitting at a bar facing a bartender. That's right. an yeah, well, important, that's important shift that happens there as part of the Industrial Revolution. But... Mm. Anyway, different conversation for a different day. Um, the thing I want to I want to really emphasize though is that all of the stuff like the celebration, the drunkenness, but then also like the mass and the liturgy, right? The high things and the low things about the feast day for the Puritan that was all a package, and it had to all be rejected. Um, and so this leads to the outright banning um, starting in 1645, and then again in 1647, they passed an ordinance in England abolishing the feast of Christmas. Easter and Whitsun or Pentecost. Easter right? too. Really? Abolishing Easter as well, like which uh, was people always forget about that. Wow. People always forget about that. And that that uh, remains in force until the restoration in 1660. Um, in fact, there was a really fun kind of a popular song. I wish I remembered to, to put the lyrics in my notes for this talk, but um, there was like a kind of a fun popular song uh, celebrating because now we know you know, that Charles has, has you know, Charles has come back, Charles II, because now we know when Christmas is. 
Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And so there've been, because there've been like a lot of underground celebrations and things oh, like that going goodness, on. Can you imagine, time. like, think about yeah. it today. If we said, I mean, they did it during COVID. Some, some right, right, right. Here, they're like, you can't celebrate Christmas this year. And it's like, yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, this is like, this This was all a package deal. The Puritans believed that by purging the liturgy and the iconography of the papal religion, they would also be able to usher in a, an era of moral improvement, right? And that's the kind of the thing that's a, a continuous theme of, uh, people who want to get rid of Christmas is that by doing so we'll make we'll become morally better as a society, mm-hmm. right? That it's that Christmas is is associated with excess or it's associated with corruption, like decadence of some sort. Which is funny because like it's just interesting because that's the danger of the feast. You know, it's like right. You think people don't get drunk at weddings, right? Do you think people don't get drunk at funerals? Do you think people don't? You know, it's like. When you gather together to celebrate something, it has, uh, there's a kind of ecstasy there. There's something yeah. going on, which is both very positive, but also dangerous. And so you kind of have to navigate that line so that it doesn't fall into, and it also is a revealer. It reveals, it. you know, the feast can reveal the nature of a group yeah. you know, and reveal its quality, you know, because if it gets out of hand, then it, it also is showing something about the nature of that communion. Yes, that is that is a really important note. Um, uh, the other the other thing is that when you when you re- try really hard to repress this, yeah, right, that it, that it will pop up again, but it'll pop up in some really dangerously excessive way. That's right, right. Um, in the same way that you know uh, the if you you can have Christian liturgy or you can have the occult, like pick like you know like. But it, but there's a liturgical impulse in human beings that they that, that you know everybody has to participate in something. So this is also like up. there's so many things about it, like social dancing, for example. Oh yeah, a great example of that. Where it's like it's like can you be at a at a feast where you dance with someone else's wife? Can you is that possible? And then what can can you maintain the order and the right the right ordering? in that kind of that place that could reveal your yeah. your darkness let's say yeah yeah um can i tell you a joke yeah go for this it this is a joke that we bat as a baptist growing up we told about ourselves so it's um it's not intended to be cruel um uh how baptist so it goes like how baptist am i uh how baptist are you um, I'm so Baptist that we don't play old maid in the front of the house because if somebody drives through by at 50 miles an hour, looks through the window, sees us playing cards, they'll assume we're playing poker. If we're playing poker, we're gambling. If you're gambling, you're fornicating. We all know that fornication leads to premarital dancing. That's a you know, Yeah. Anyway, just, yeah. Oh, yeah. this is a joke that we kind of told about ourselves, but, uh, but I think there's really something to that. Social dancing is, which is something I was not allowed to do growing up. Um, and then I married a wife, my, my wife who, who loves dancing. And, uh, so we, you know, so she sort of like introduced me to it and it was just like, um, man, it was, it was a weird moment. The first time that I danced to music, it was mm. bizarre. And the reason it was bizarre, I discovered two things. One is I really like dancing. Uh, but the other is that I suddenly realized what music was for. Mm. Like I, I, I grew up, I was a violinist and I did a lot of like Irish fiddle music, like jigs and reels, which are just Without dancing, but I'd never danced in my life. And so my wife and I we used to do like 
Um, we got really into folk dance at a period and we did a bunch of Scottish country dance. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first time I like danced to a, 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 a reel, but I was actually doing the reel, suddenly everything about the music clicked into place for me. Mm. And it was just this very bizarre moment of realizing that that like there was a whole half of me that was dead and mm. then it just came to life. And it was it was just very, it was very strange. Um, so yeah, um, it, all this to say, there was this period, you know, a relatively short period, but a pretty infamous period and it really scarred English society for a long time, uh, where it was actually against the law to celebrate Christmas. Um, and of course, the real irony in all of this is that the direct descendants of Puritans will now fight vociferously to have a nativity scene in a public space. That's right. Right. To, uh, to, to fight for the use of Merry Christmas instead of just Happy Holidays and so on. And I and, and it's because there's this stickiness about Christmas, like you can do whatever you want to, but Christmas will win eventually. Mm-hmm. It will yeah. win. Um, and plenty of other people have tried to get rid of it since the time of the Puritans. We could talk about, uh, I'll talk about some of them in a moment, but of course there's like a modern manifestation of Puritanism that is sort of like the political correct, the PC woke culture, yeah, yeah. right? Uh, that, that, that tries really hard to get rid of Christmas or to change Christmas or to like reimagine it in some way. I mean, think about any modern TV show, it's been a thing in American network television for decades that you have to have a Christmas episode. Yeah. Right. And so one of the things that you'll see in more recent TV shows is that whenever the Christmas episode comes around, they have to do more and more to kind of like recontextualize what Christmas means, but they can't get away from doing the episode. Right. And Christmas, man, Christmas aesthetics, they are powerful. You yeah. cannot get rid of that. Like just it's weird because even like even the the the, even the all the efforts of all the marketing companies to reduce it and to remove the christian part of it and to stylize it and to do that is just feeding it like you cannot get rid of of the christian the the christmas like visuals the smell the the music it just you there's no way now like imagine trying to to get rid of that yeah, it's just impossible. Yeah. Uh, so actually, you mentioned the smell. I wanted to make sure I didn't forget to mention this. So uh, because New England, New England specifically, other parts of the U.S. were found that were, were settled by different people, many of whom were like had no trouble with Christmas at all. Um, but but New England was settled by Puritans and separatists, right? And one of the really interesting things there is that uh, um, at some point in the history of New England, it was before the American Revolution. Um, uh, they, the, the towns in New England would actually hire mints sniffers. They were called mints sniffers. So the job of a mints sniffer is to walk through the village or walk through the town on Christmas day and sniff the air and make sure nobody's cooking Christmas foods <laughs> on Christmas day. Man. Um, and you could be like really severely punished, really severely punished for celebrating Christmas, you know, um, at that particular time. So, uh, and, and at that time, like the whole idea of Christmas celebration, again, like that's something the German immigrants at the end of the street might be doing, but good Puritan families were participating in that. Um, so uh, to kind of get up, up to modern times, the early 19th century is really a renaissance for Christmas celebrations in the Anglosphere. And this is for two reasons. What is the Oxford movement, which is basically this, uh, it was like a movement within the Church of England to uh, kind of return to like a more patristic uh, uh, basis for the tradition um, it's kind of when Anglo-Catholicism as such sort of develops into full flower, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, kind of right along the same time, you had uh, a guy named Charles Dickens. And I know they made a movie about him rec- uh, a couple of years ago or something called 
the man who invented Christmas, which I actually did not see because I hate seeing movies about historical figures that I, I, I like or I know a lot about because I'll just get angry. Especially but, now. It's like especially now, right? maybe yeah. 20 years ago. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I just don't, I didn't know what they were going to do. But so I don't know if the movie was any good or not. But it's it's like, you know, there's something about the title there, The Man Who Invented Christmas, which is like a little cheeky. Uh, but also, also, it's not totally wrong, right? Um, uh, like I said, Christmas had been pretty, had taken a pretty big hit in the 17th century. And it was being celebrated in England again, but also... It was, it was still like, there was just a lot of every year, like kind of like uh hand wringing around the celebration of Christmas mm -hmm. and et cetera. So, but this really between the Oxford movement and they're trying to go back and basically revise, revive the medieval practices of these feasts. And then Charles Dickens coming along and, and writing a Christmas carol, um, uh, did a ton to revive traditional celebrations of the holiday focused, especially on the ancient theme of charitable works at this time, which again, is a very important part of traditionally celebrating Christmas. And to this day, I mean, you say what you want to say about Americans, but to this day, it remains this time of year that that we are the most likely to give to charity. Even yeah. people who don't think about or give anything to the poor the rest of the year, mm. on Christmas, there's suddenly this like generosity that where our hearts will open up, uh, you know, a little bit more than they were open before. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that Dickens, I, it's funny because now I'd never thought about that, but I think yeah. about now that it's called the Christmas Carol, yeah, it, it's a secular, you know, it's not directly Christian. It it kind of floats around the themes like the, what you described about the Christmas carols. That's exactly why it's called a Christmas Carol, and um, it's 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 so interesting because there are of course references to people going to church, references to Christ, references to like the theme of the day, the 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 little babe in the manger who makes the lame walk, and you know, et cetera, right? That's all in there, but you're right. It's a it's not a liturgical story. It's not just a retelling of the 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 nativity narratives from the gospels or something like that. It's this sort of thing that's happening around the church, mm -hmm. right? In the uh, around the church and specifically throughout the life of one man. And uh, it kind of creates this really. Uh, I think I, I think what is so genius about the Christmas Carol. I mean, we should do a whole video just on it. Um, is that it? Uh, we're going to talk in a moment about these, these idea of like sort of knots in time, mm. right? Which is really what a feast day is. And the Christmas Carol takes that idea and runs with it because it ties Scrooge's entire life together over the course of one Christmas to the yeah. next, right. right? Which, which becomes like a really powerful way of thinking about our own lives, right? You know, where were we on this feast day? What person were we on this feast day? Mm -hmm. you know? So in the United States, uh, like I said, Christmas was really seen more as more of an ethnic holiday, which meant that you actually had whole communities that just didn't celebrate Christmas, mm. uh, which is kind of unthinkable now um, at, until about the, the late 19th century. And it really starts to be celebrated in the late 19th century thanks to the works of poets, like the guy whose name I'm forgetting right now who wrote the, what was originally called A Visit from St. Nicholas, uh, Twas the Night Before Christmas, you know, that poem. And then, uh, which 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 really basically kicks off the whole idea of gift giving at Christmas in the United States. Yeah, and joins the the feast of Saint Nicholas with Christmas because I always right. wondered like when did that happen? At some point, yeah. for us, it's crushed together in the West. Yeah, like, yeah. Saint Nicholas and Christmas are the same. And then you've you like I had a Romanian priest in our parish for a few years, and he was really annoyed that we gave gifts at Christmas, and was like really trying to like make sure that we give our gifts, you know, on St. Nicholas Day, which... Oh, that's so fun. He didn't yeah. succeed, though. Like, yeah. it, nice try. It's too... Now it's yeah. too deep, like in our... Too deep, yeah. Yeah, you can't, you can't undo it. Um, uh, and then there was also... Um, 
Uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is, I guess, a little infamous now. But anyway, um, she also wrote a, 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 a story, I think it's called A Christmas in New England, which did a lot to kind of popularize the celebration of Christmas. And like the whole focus of A Christmas in New England, right, is on this sort of like immigrant community within New England that's celebrating the holiday and that other people kind of get involved and participate in it. And so, yeah, so... In the 18 late 19th century is really when Christmas takes off in the United States. And this culminates in its declaration as a federal holiday in 1870. Wow. Um, and it's important to note that for Americans, that wasn't even a holiday. Great yeah, Christmas yeah. wasn't even a holiday up to the time. And it's totally unthinkable now, but like George Washington didn't celebrate Christmas. Worked on Christmas, yeah. Like, like he didn't just work on Christmas. He fought that. He attacked the Hessians who were Germans on Christmas because they were celebrating. And it was like that's like his famous like crossing the Delaware attacks the Hessians. One of the most important victories of the American Revolutionary War worked because the Americans weren't celebrating on Christmas Day, yeah. and the and the the Hessians were right. So it's like these various like very interesting kind of history there in, in our early uh, status as a uh, early time as a, as a nation, and then Christmas kind of developing more and more first as this immigrant thing, and that now it's totally universal. Um, and so there's a lot more that we could probably say about the symbolism of the holiday. Um, I kind of run out of time here to talk about the use of like Santa Claus as a marketing image. Yeah. Or Coca-Cola specifically. And also, yeah, like I think it's important. I think yeah. this is an argument that people use a lot is that in some ways, you know, Santa Claus today was made up by Coca-Cola. And right. I really, res I resist that to some extent. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, I think that the the character of Father Christmas and St. Nicholas were there in the 19th century. You see yeah. the character. And then they kind of get fused into one, one, one character, which is our modern Santa Claus. But and then and then the marketing companies kind of jump on that. And you know, Coca Cola did simplify the costume, let's say, in terms of the white band and stuff. Right, and but, made it. Let's be honest, like a little more palatable to some people, right? Like, well, less know. less of a bishop, for right? Time. Exactly, some guy with a crozier and a bishop's mitre. Like, that's not gonna that's not gonna play in. In like in like post yeah exactly in like post Puritan, yeah. Puritan yeah. Uh, America yeah um but but nonetheless like they stumble onto all this amazing this is why when you talk about how Christmas is so sticky it's like yeah. you know people I did a video on Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer which is basically was made up by uh like a what was it one of the big department stores in the United States yeah. and it was given out at Christmas as a gift to people buying at the department store to get people into the store but they stumbled onto true things. You know, there's something yeah. about how symbolism happens. And I think in the symbolism of Santa Claus and the way that we think about the sleigh and everything, all of these, these are very powerful images that, that, uh, that even though marketing companies came up with them or brought them up, it doesn't really matter if we recognize in them some images that have weight. And the fact that they're remembered means that there's, there's some actual weight in those images. Yeah, I'm a huge sucker for Santa Claus movies in general. Um, uh, uh, Miracle on 34th Street is a really, there are two remakes. Uh, two, they made it twice and it, both both versions are quite good, I think. Um, uh, there's also, um, there was an animated film about uh, Santa Claus, like a, Santa Claus is like a family dynasty that came out a few years later called, or a, a few years ago rather, called Arthur Christmas. Mm. And um, it's, a, it's a really interesting movie. It is a, uh, he does a lot of sort of interesting things, like tries to subvert the Santa Claus symbolism at the outset and then shows all the problems that that causes. And then by the end, 
things have to kind of revert back to the traditional pattern. And um, I haven't seen it. I should watch that. Yeah, it's interesting. It's I would love to know your thoughts on it. It's 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 an interesting one. But um, but uh, but yeah, I I think that it's one of these weird things because actually the Soviet Union, of course, tried to also abolish Christmas. And when they did, they just replaced it with a winter holiday. And they had a they had Old Man Winter, you know, who looks who's dressed exactly like Santa Claus, right? And he's the one that brings you the presents now. That's you know? right. You know, and uh, it's there's something about this, right? Uh, all of the attempts actually to revive or or create competing uh, winter holidays in the secular world around us today. Going back to the French Revolution, my favorite one is the. Do you guys um, do you have like the Three Kings cake? Because that's something that you. Yeah, do? we do that here. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's not that's a that's a French thing. It's yeah. it's not something that I grew up with, but it's a French thing. Uh, and so you'll 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 get a kick out of knowing that during the French Revolution they renamed the Three Kings cake to the Equality cake, uh, which is which is amazing because the original story about the Three Kings is that you have like the highest thing becomes low and then the high thing comes down and venerates the thing that's become low that was you know yeah. like and then it's like you know Equality cake it's all perfectly it's all perfectly even no and kings. they don't put they don't put the seed I bet they don't put the seed in there they don't I put assume it. not because it's yeah. like hey. Someone gets someone special if he finds the thing. Yeah. You can't have that. It's you just the guillotine out, is what people. you get if you find just the seed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's just... have, like in Quebec, we like in French in, in, in Quebec, we yeah. Santa Claus, we call him Father Christmas. Yeah. Like that's how we, that, so, and that's a that's a that's like, like Papa Noel or something. Yeah, Papa like Noel, yeah, yeah. Père Noel. And that's like a, that there's this whole character that appeared in Western Europe and in France that had the had the hat and was very similar to the way that we understand yeah. uh uh santa claus now so it's like yeah. all these characters get fused yeah it seems like it's a thing that that has to happen you know yeah um so i i want to there's a lot more we could say about this but there are a few things that i want to point out that are like really beautiful to me about all of this uh that we kind of been talking about and then i'm going to give you what i call my midwit defense of christmas all right so uh the first thing is just to say that uh kind of against the general detractors of christmas right that that christmas is actually not our most over commercialized time of the year um we're always over commercialized christmas is the only time of year that we notice it mm. right because you know if you think about like all the kitsch and like the 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 one dollar you know like the bargain bins and stuff at target or walmart or whatever like those are there all year you know but only at christmas do you notice it and get irritated about it yeah. Um, I think it is a, a really beautiful time where the sort of the let's say the soft iconoclasm of American religion gives way to not just like putting up nativity scenes with statues of Jesus, Joseph, and Mary, like in your house, in your yard, in the village square, right? But actually defending that practice in the court of public opinion. Mm. Uh, which is really something to think about. Yeah. Um, and uh it's also, the time of year, like I mentioned, but by, by the numbers, we're the most generous, right? It's the one day a year that even confirmed heathens will show up to church. So mm -hmm. I was a pastor and I'm from a family of pastors, and I get that there's always something in you that wants to complain when somebody shows up on Christmas Day or on Easter or Pascha, and you haven't seen them in a year. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, so now you're here, right? But but like, you could also flip that around, though, and think about the fact that there's something so potent about this day mm. that even the most confirmed heathen will still show up to light a candle. Right, they'll still show up to a midnight. Like they'll still come to church with their kids. Yeah. Like they take their kids to church the one day a year. There's something really special, something really potent about about this day. Yeah. So I want to kind of explain that. I'll give you what I call my my midwit uh, uh, apology or or defense of Christmas, and I call it a midwit. Um, uh, some people know I'm a big fan of like the the format of the midwit meme, right? And so you know the 
the uh, I'm sure we can put one up here on the screen or something. But you know, the idea is this is you have like a really dumb person at one end and a really smart person at the other end, and there's a bell curve in the middle, and the bell curve in the middle, that guy's the midwit. Um so in this case, the meme is the really the really simple person who says, celebrate Christmas because it's Jesus' birthday, right? And then at the other end, you have the saint who says the same thing, celebrate Christmas because it's Jesus' birthday. And for a lot of people, and uh, I'll, I'll go as far as to say probably the majority of the people watching this video, that is enough. That is enough. But for all the people kind of like in the middle there. The sources. Right? Yes, the sources people, yes. We need like a little more kind of an explanation and understanding of why we're doing the things that we're doing. Mm. And and again, as I said, to me, this is a really important, this is a really important thing. So um, I'm going to read some little bits and, and kind of talk through some bits from Charles Taylor's work, A Secular Age, which is one of the most important books that I think anybody could read right now. Um, and what's amazing is that a lot of the ideas that I have really benefited from here on the symbolic world, listening to your videos and conversations over the last several years, I first encountered in Taylor. And then when I saw your videos, I was like, oh, somebody else is talking about that same thing, right? And it was just a really, I don't know, validating in a certain way. So uh, he talks about basically this idea that there are three kinds of time. Uh, for medieval man, there are three kinds of time. And the the first one is the... Uh, uh, in, in one of our previous videos, I refer to this as the difference between Kronos and Kairos as two kinds of time. But Taylor says there's three, right? So there's, first of all, there's, there's Kronos, which we could refer to as was what, what Taylor calls homogenous or empty time, mm-hmm. right? Which for modernity is the central form of time, yeah. right? History as a series of accidents, right? In the philosophical sense, like history as a series of accidents, cause and effect, and just sort of this cause and effect in an endless chain with no particular meaning to it right and then um the second kind of time is what we could call chirotic time and so uh chirotic time would be time filled being filled with meaning so taylor says that the time of carnival for instance is chirotic uh that is the timeline encounters chirotic knots uh so you have this the straight line and then suddenly you get kind of like a knot where everything gets kind of snarled up and bended together and um, moments whose nature and placing calls for reversal, followed by others demanding rededication, and still others which approach parousia. So he, this is his Shrove Tuesday Lent Easter, right? Mm-hmm. So Shrove Tuesday, that's Mardi Gras, right? Yeah. Is this a great moment of carnival or reversal, followed by Lent for rededication, and then Easter, which is like parousia, the coming, yeah. right? the revealing. So there are, now there are chironic knots in the stories we tell about ourselves in our time, Revolutions themselves are understood by their heirs and supporters as such chirotic moments. So you think about whatever country you live in and and uh, the important political moments or like revolutions that you've had. Uh, in my case, like the American Revolution becomes this huge kind of chirotic moment where the actual details and timelines about George Washington and Benjamin Franklin and the founding fathers and July the 4th and all that stuff is less important than all of those things kind of being gathered together in that particular moment. Yeah. Um, it says nationalist historiography is full of such moments, but what has changed is that around which these moments gather. So in the pre-modern era, um, the organizing field for ordinary time comes from these higher times. So the higher times are basically two sources. Um, so if you think of ordinary time as like secular time, uh, I know that the word secular can mean various different things here, but for now we'll just call it the sort of homogenous chronological time. There are kind of two sources for that meaning. Uh, and what is what is eternity, right? Eternity sort of breaking into ordinary time. 
And then the other is what Taylor calls like the great time, right? Uh, and this is, this is like, it's a like mythical time. This is like when all the important stuff happened to make the way the world that it is today, right? Yeah. Um, so if you're, you know, living in like a pre, uh, like, like a stone age civilization or something, the great time is like when the gods were on earth walking around yeah. among mortals, right? You know, um, for the Christian story, the great time is really the gospel, right? The gospels when Christ was here on earth, right? When he's establishing these things. And there's this idea that, um, Taylor really develops um, the way that you have the horizontal dimension of secular time, but also these vertical dimensions where eternity and where or, or and the and or the great time kind of break into that secular time. Mm. And you could say like the more pronounced that happens, the bigger the knot becomes. Yeah, and this is what makes uh, these relationships, and it's really a three-way relationship between homogenous time. And, uh, and, you know, like our mythical history and then eternity. Yeah. The more relationships there are, the bigger the knot becomes. And this is actually what gives time meaning. And, uh, there's a famous line, uh, in Hamlet. And I'm still waiting for all the symbolic world people to have like the big Hamlet moment. So maybe it'll happen. Um, um, because Hamlet is a tremendously important, one of Shakespeare's most important plays. It's a tremendously important work of literature because it's, it's one of the things that Hamlet is grappling with. Is the is the sort of the great uh, disenchantment and yeah. the the passover from the ancient world into the modern, right? It's it's not for nothing that um, that Hamlet has just come from you know university, mm. you know in Germany at the birthplace of the Reformation. He's just come from Ger uh, university in Germany at the birth birth birthplace of modernity, right? And he's coming back and he's trying to apply these modern understandings to this, these encounters with the world that are just wild and insane. And his father is a ghost and his mother, you know, and, and a big cuckold, like all these things. And Hamlet eventually goes insane, like trying to kind of keep it all together. Mm. Um, you know, and, you know, get stabbed and a deal with everything else as well. But, but I mean, the, the kind of the point, you know, uh, this is one of the big things that the, the, the play is wrestling with. And, um, but there's this line in there where he says, the times are out of joint. Mm -hmm. The times are out of joint, which has kind of become like a, like a phrase. But this is what it means. It means that uh, he, he's it, he's he's uh, he's not just saying the condition of Danish society at this particular time is lamentable. That's not what he means. He means that things aren't fitting together in the proper fashion anymore, as they do in times which are closer to those ordering paradigms of eternity out of the sacred time. Mm -hmm. And it's it's interesting. This comes relatively soon after his he's having a discussion with marcellus and marcellus says you know that uh, ghosts and goblins don't dare walk the earth on christmas eve you know on so hallowed and so gracious is the time which mm -hmm. by the way you know this is is hamlet a christmas story well diehard is a christmas story hamlet's definitely a christmas story but anyway um so the thing with christmas is that it's one of these moments and the other moment really is the the crucifixion uh, which is something that that uh, that uh, Taylor also identifies, that uh, the crucifixion and and Christmas are these two moments where there's a complete, like like, the relationships that kind of keep all of these things related to each other are like the most complete, right? The symbolism matches up the most, right? You could say, and uh, because of that, these moments become extremely sticky, or the knots become like really really tangled, yeah. and and it becomes almost impossible, becomes almost impossible 
to disentangle those things. Hmm. And so what people try to do is sort of cut the Gordian knot and just like cut right through it and say, no more Christmas, right? But, but, it, but it, Christmas has this tremendous regenerative quality to it. Um, and I think it's because it's the moment when it's the moment when the great time and eternity and chronological time. I mean, it's really important that Christ was born in Bethlehem. We know more or less the day. We know more or less the year. But it's really important that that God enters history, uh, because the other option is that you have with the situation that the Greeks had, which would be chronological time, and then uh, eternity, like the world of ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's nothing. There's nothing to kind of bridge the gap between them. So what they end up coming up with is the idea of time as being sort of sempiternal, which is constantly, constantly progressing. Like no, basically time with no beginning or no end, right? Uh, like always change, but never fulfillment, right? And but in Christmas, we get this, we get this, this fulfillment of all of these things, and and all of the sort of the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of time come together in this warp. Yeah. Yeah, which and, is here's in the story itself. Yeah. Like we mentioned obviously we don't want to go through all the Christmas symbolism, but yep. there it is the the tree with the with the with yep. the nativity set, you know, at the at the bottom of the manger. Whether it is the angels singing down to the shepherds, you know, they're they're just countless, or it is these these wise men that come from afar. Like all of the symbolism of Christmas is about this intersection in the story itself, not even accounting for what it is, what it's actually doing for us. At that moment. And so this is my, just to wrap this up, this is my argument for why you have to celebrate Christmas, right? It's not just enough to believe that the this child born of a virgin was the Logos from before the ages, right? We can say we believe that all we want to, but if we don't act on that information in some way, and the way that you act on this information, the 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 uh, Taylor referred uh, talks about liturgy and like the the let's say he talks about the feast, the act of celebration as being like a song, right? So the song has a, a melody, like a think of like a little melody, has sequential moments, you know, all these different notes and everything. But but really, the beginning to the end of that song all happen in the same moment because it's a unit, right? So if you don't sing the song, then you're not actually you have no way of participating in it in that moment, the moment just passes you by, mm. right? And if you don't celebrate Christmas, then the moment, this holy moment, right? This moment when heaven and earth, everything comes together into this point, right? That moment just passes you by and pretty soon you stop believing at all, right? Mm. You stop really thinking, I mean, uh, there, uh, you know, there's, there are certain organizations that will do like polls to see like, what's the state of belief, mm. you know, and like year after year, um, if you look at this, uh, one of the questions on there is, um, is uh, uh, true or false, Jesus Christ is the greatest being ever created by God, right? And so, um, and that's so it's one of the questions on the survey. And Horrible question. Every, well, yeah, it's it's definitely a leading question, right? But Tricky question, man. Yeah, but what happens is that every year, or every four years when they do the survey, that number goes up by 10 or 15%. Yeah. Right, where people are just sort of like sliding into Arianism, mm. right? And um, you know, there's a lot that could be said about the state of catechesis and theological education in churches in America today, et cetera, et cetera. But really, the thing that we need to do is not just put Christ back in Christmas, but put the Mass back in Christmas, right? Mm. To really keep the feast, to keep the celebration, 
And you can keep it at every single one of these dimensions. You can go to church and contemplate the mystery. You can wake your neighbors up, in, uh, you know, at nine o'clock at night and sing, sing them songs and offer them booze. Like you can do all of this stuff, mm. right? You can participate in all of these dimensions. And if you do, you'll be more of a human being than you were. But if you do, you will also be able to draw closer to Christ and closer to your neighbor, right? And that actually without these things, what ends up happening is that time just becomes does, every, does anybody remember COVID, right? With all the celebrations taken away, like like what happened? Time what happened became, during COVID, exactly. Yeah, time Nothing just happened. becomes this long kind of like like undifferentiated linear, yeah, you know, passage, and and nothing there, and there's no memory, right? There's no memory. There's no participation. So that's the midwit explanation. The easy one is it's Jesus' birthday. Why wouldn't you celebrate it? So. All right, Richard, that's great. Thank you so much. And uh, don't forget, everybody, by the way, that Richard will be there at the Symbolic World Summit. So if you want to- I have so many crazy things planned for the Universal History Panel. I mean, I'm really gonna, I'm gonna really like just not restrain myself even a little bit. We're gonna get into some really fun, shared stuff, so. So I can't, I definitely can't wait. So everybody, thanks again, Richard. I wish you a Merry Christmas and- uh, Likewise. See you in the, in the, in the new year. If you enjoyed these videos and podcasts, please go to the symbolicworld.com website and see how you can support what we're doing. There are multiple subscriber tiers with perks, there are apparel and books to purchase. So go to the symbolicworld.com and thank you for your support. I want to invite you all to the very first Symbolic World Summit. Over three days, we will finally meet in real time, in real space, and everyone from this little corner of the internet will be there to explore the theme of reclaiming the cosmic image. Of course, I will be speaking, but there will also be Martin Shaw, who is an amazing mythographer, Father Stephen DeYoung of Lord of Spirit fame. There will be Richard Rowland from the Universal History Series, Vesper Stamper, Nicholas Kotar, and Neil DeGray that you've all seen on my channel here and there. For entertainment, we have everyone's favorite apocalyptic band, the one and only Dirt Poor Robbins. This event will be the chance of a lifetime to capture and embrace our current moment. So join us from February 29th to March 2nd, 2024 in Tarpon Springs, Florida. Visit thesymbolicworld.com slash summit for more information, and I will see you there.